Okay. What do you say after being introduced by the Pope himself over here? <laughs> what a privilege. We've been uh, holy meetings up in Oregon. We've been at three of the colleges up there. And now here and at the seminary tomorrow and then down to San Diego and Heritage on Thursday, Wednesday rather, and then back to beautiful Scroon Lake. For those of you that aren't acquainted with Word of Life, you've got a little bird's eye view up there. Uh, may I say that um, we have some representatives here. And uh, Julie Dolan is one of our grads and uh, a lot of our students. We're a one-year Bible Institute, as you know, and they some transfer around different places. And then uh, uh, Tom Phillips, I want you to meet him at the close. Tom's in charge of Word of Life Bible Clubs for California, Arizona. That about it. Meet Tom Phillips. Stand up over there, Tom. Do you want to do anything more? Hey, Tom. And then a man who is chauffeuring us around a little bit today. I met him for the first time, Ernest Benozian. Would you stand up, Ernie? Right over there in Santa Barbara. And the reason I know him, for the last two years I've had the privilege of speaking at the senior officer's prayer breakfast in the Pentagon uh, to some 500 senior officers, admirals, generals, and so on at their prayer breakfast. And his son, Jeff, uh, was the, um, he was on the committee that brought me. He was a surgeon, very well-known surgeon there, uh, working with the top brass in the Pentagon. And now he dropped out of the army. He's down in Dallas Seminary, and he probably end up as a missionary. He's going out to Bangladesh this uh, summer. We're very, very proud of him. And then you've already met my wife over here. Honey, you better stand up so they know which one my wife is. I don't want to make any mistakes. I told a friend of mine the other day, we've been married for 10 months and we haven't even had a scrap yet. He said, you better see a psychologist and a psychiatrist right away and find out what's wrong with your marriage that you haven't had a scrap for 10 months. Well, the Lord has been very, very good to us. Connection with Word of Life, we're on the radio, mainly in the Northeast and in the Midwest. We're on about 100 stations in four languages. We're on in English, in Spanish, in South America, in Portuguese, in Brazil, and then on 20 shortwave radio stations into Russia with a half hour. And we've just finished translating the entire New Testament uh, over the radio. You know, there are more shortwave radios in Russia than any other country on the face of the earth. And there's a lot of wonderful children of God in Russia. And they don't have any Bibles. We've tried to smuggle Bibles and been arrested and so on into Russia. Uh, we've smuggled it in now. Uh, we take a half hour a week and say, now everybody get out your pen and paper. And we know of hundreds of thousands of people in Russia now that have the entire New Testament in their own handwriting. Isn't that wonderful? We praise the Lord for that. At our camps that you've just seen a little picture of in Adirondacks, during the summer we have about 2,000 a week at the five camps plus about 500 on the staff. Last summer they came from 39 states and 31 foreign countries. Uh, we've just opened a camp up in Canada and Ontario. And uh, also we are on, I think, 28 countries now with camps around the world on all six continents. We also have a camp in, in Hungary, something I'd like you to pray about during the first part of April. Uh, the decision will be made by the Hungarian government where they're going to give us a great big monastery that we would like to take over for a youth camp. 
miracles are happening in Hungary. And we also have a camp in, uh, in Poland. People say, are you working undercover in Hungary? Well, last year we, for two weeks we had Tom Harris with us and we had 1,800 teenagers. How do you keep two, 1,800 teenagers undercover? And everybody in the country, it's a small country, knows about it. Uh, likewise in, in Poland. Uh, I noticed on the screen over on the right-hand side here was a girl by the name of Andrea down by the lake and she is from Hungary. I believe this is the first time they've ever allowed from Poland or Hungary because of our connections over there students to come and study the Word of God for a year and then to go back. Uh, we have uh, snow camps also. Uh, we'll be back for that this Friday. And when we left last Tuesday, we had three feet of snow, and it was 20 below zero. And that's what we love. We're in snow country. We're right up in the Adirondacks. Not right, Julie? We like cold weather, you know. It really, you come out here, you know, it's kind of soft and flowery beds of these in Southern California. But uh, we have about a 1,000 come in every weekend, high school and college young people. And, and during the summer, we'll have a couple of hundred decisions during the week. And on weekends, 40, 50, 60 or more for salvation. And then uh, we, as you could see, have a Bible Institute with about 500 students. And um, the Lord has really, really been visiting with us these days in a real special way. I'll share that with you in a moment. Uh, we have 12 other Bible Institutes around the world, um, in South America, in the Philippines, and over in Australia and Europe and, and so on. And then we do have Word Life Bible Clubs, and uh, we're trying to indoctrinate young people. We have the Olympian program for the boys and girls, 6 to 11. We have junior high clubs, senior high clubs, and college and career. So from about 6 to 30, uh, we teach them how to have an effective quiet time and how to study good, strong uh, doctrine. We have about a 1,000 of these clubs, over a 1,000 now, uh, here in the States, plus a lot of them overseas. And then about every six weeks, we put on a big deal to reach the unconverted. For instance, I spoke... On Friday night, from Friday night till Saturday morning, we had 2,100 and some odd teenagers in Portland, Oregon. From um, 7 at night till 7 in the morning, we call it Super Bowl. And uh, there was about a couple of hundred of them gave their hearts to the Lord. And at the same time, uh, Mike Calhoun was down with the gang, and we had a, uh, just short of 4,000 in Dallas, Texas, with one of these Super Bowls, all-night deal. And again, there were several hundred that accepted the Lord. Well, we thank the Lord for this wide-open door. And uh, if you'd like a brochure, this is our latest magazine. They're over here. Uh, take one along. It'll give you a little more about it. I read a very interesting article the other day by Dr. Don Sisk, and he said he had observed in visiting Bible preaching churches around the country that very few, if any, prominent pastors have children of their own on the mission fields. He says, is it possible that our children have sensed that being a missionary is really not important, regardless of our rhetoric? A young lady at a well-known Christian college recently surveyed her classes. The question was asked, rate the employees of the local church according to their value and importance. Those included were pastor, assistant pastor, youth pastor, music director, evangelist, missionary, secretary, school teacher, janitor, musicians, and so on. Without exception, Missionaries were the last one on everyone's list, even below the janitor. Frankly, that astonished me, said Dr. Sisk. Whatever message we are putting out, our attitude toward missions and missionaries is coming through loud and clear to our young people. 
Have you asked God to call your children and your grandchildren to the mission field lately? It's not too late to start. What is God doing? We have just come from our Bible Institute where we had our annual five-day missionary conference. And the last meeting went on for five hours. We began at six at night and ended up after 11. More than 200 young people came forward and signed a covenant by the grace of God they were going to go to the farm field unless God put the stops on and kept them here. The last night at 10 o'clock at night we took an offering, 500 students, and they gave over $10,000, I think $11,000 in cash, and they made a faith promise to made good by June 1 of 50,000 more. 61,000 in one offering from 500 students. Last year, our student body won $500 over what they had promised to give to the Lord. Our theme was win the loss at any cost. And somehow, I really feel we've lost the spirit of sacrifice in the church in the United States of America today. Not so overseas. Recently, I was with our Bible Institute, and we'll soon have a thousand students in Buenos Aires, headed up by Joe Jordan. And I was with a group of our students there that were talking about going to Central America. And I looked at them and I said, Central America, that's the trouble spot of the world. Somebody's going to get killed. And I remember the leader of the group looked at me and I realized I said the wrong thing. He said, well, so what has that got to do with it? He said, you know, we Argentines don't have to come back, but we must go out. And I'd say to all of you kids here this morning, you don't have to come back. That body of yours is a disposable container. It's going to die one day anyway. But we must go out. Now what is God doing today? Turn your Bibles please to Acts chapter 15 verse 14. And here James reminded us that Simeon, that was Peter, hath declared how God first did visit the nations to take out of them a people for his name. And then in verse 16, after this, I will return. When is the Lord going to come back again after he takes out a people for his name's sake? What is God doing today? According to Revelation 5, 9, he's calling people out of every kindred, every tongue, every people, every nation. And we all have got to get in on that. We must win the loss. At any cost. But what a lot of people trying to do. There's so many places the church is being sidetracked instead of keeping on the main track. A lot of people are trying to change the United States. We're going to save the world. We're going to save the United States. You think we are? Listen to this clipping. U.S. leads the world on a per capita basis in drug usage, abortion, divorce, homosexuality, murders, pornography, debt, court litigation, crime, government deficit, taxation, television hours watched, in entertainment, and in gambling. We are the leaders of the world in these major sins. So I don't think God's going to save America. I hear some of these evangelists talking as though... How's God ever going to get along without America? 
Well, that's not the question how God's going to get along without America. The question is how's America going to get along without God? And we've turned our backs on God. And look at the scourge of AIDS today, the judgment of God, because of the sinfulness of our country. Now again, look at the verse. Peter hath declared how God first did visit the nations to take out of them a people for his name. And after this I will return. I believe there are only two reasons why the Lord has not returned. Number one, according to Second Peter 2, he's giving you and me more time to get out the gospel at home and abroad to the ends of the earth. Number two, he's giving sinners more time to repent. In our Word Life Time Diary, we've just recently finished the book of James, and I wrote down a workable faith. And then I wrote down all talk and no walk. And there's a lot of people doing a lot of talking today, but they're not walking. Now, Ezekiel had that problem way back in his day. You remember, Ezekiel had developed a popular following in Babylon of all places. And God had to remind him in Ezekiel 33, and that's what God said to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, they hear thy words, but they will not do them. With their mouths they show much love. Lo, thou art unto them as a very, very lovely song. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. They hear thy words, but they do them not. And that's the theme of the book of James. We hear, we hear, we hear, but we're not doers of that which we hear. Perhaps in the church we'll dig up some of the grand old songs like, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No! There's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for you, for me. We have two beautiful castles in Germany, headed up by a quartet of fellows who play strings and they play brass and they sing. There are four Canadian fellows from out in the prairies. They've produced now, I think, 14 records with the Munich Symphony. And when we first went there 20 years ago, the Germans objected to the fact that we were there as missionaries. But now they say, hey, that's right, we are a mission field. Think of Germany, the great men of God and women of God that were sent to the ends of the earth. And that nation is a mission field. Our British headquarters is in uh, southern England, in Bristol. Three percent of all the people of Great Britain go to any kind of a church. This was the great missionary sending country of the world. And now it's the United States of America. We send more young men and women. We send more money. We have the training schools to prepare them to do the job. And we're still doing it, thank God, at the ends of the earth. But I frankly am beginning to wonder if the light is going out. We're so lucrative. We're so wealthy in America that we forgot to take up our cross to follow our Lord. And I am wondering if the light in America in the next few years is going to go out. And as I travel around the world in some 70 countries, I think the next two countries to send missionaries out to the ends of the earth are going to be Brazil and Argentina. And I, we have 
We have schools in both these countries. We have five camps in Brazil, and we have two in Argentina, and we have three schools in Brazil. So we have a pretty well, pretty good feel of the pulse of these countries. And every country is either a missionary sending country or they become a mission field. Germany, Great Britain. Now, let's take a look at our own country. In the United States now, we have 200 versions of the Bible in English. And gang, when you hold this book in your hand in English, are you handling it as the Word of God? Do you realize that William Tyndale, in order to give you and me this book in our own language, was burned at stake? And yet we so flippantly handled the Word of God. 200 versions in English in America today. And we argue over which translation we should read, and most Americans aren't reading any of the translations. There are 3,000 language groups in the world today that have never heard. Now get this. 95% of all the missionary work being done around the world is being done among those who have already heard. Only 5% of the missionary work is being done among those who are unreached. In the United States, we have over 1 million full-time Christian workers for 6% of the world's population. 96% of all Christian finances are spent in the United States of America. And the average church's attitude today is, who cares? 2.7 billion that have never heard. Who cares? 10,000 languages and dialects in the world. Only 1,800 have a portion of the Word of God in their language. Who cares? And so we go on here in America and we build bigger and bigger and bigger showboats that ought to be turned into battleships. I am often called upon to go out to dedicate some of these showboats. And I often wonder as I approach the place, if my Lord was asked to dedicate it or put a title up, a sign up in front of the church, I think he'd put signs up like Mickey Mouse Club or a country club with a steeple. And that's what's happening all over America today. I was asked to dedicate a church out in Pennsylvania, and it was at the end of a street that cut off there, and there was this big brand new church. And about a half hour before, the pastor and I walked into it, he said, Well, there it is. There's my church. I said, I can't see it. Okay, right there. Look, look, there. Said, yeah, I don't, I don't see the church. He said, Are you blind? Can't you see it? I said, hey, you're not talking about that brick-and-mortar stuff over there, are you? Why, yeah. I said, well, I thought the church was people. But somehow we've lost sight of the fact that the church is people. One day, one of our fellows and I were walking around up at Scroon Lake, and we were mapping out a place that we were going to have a building down at the ranch. And as we were mapping it out, a little boy about seven or eight years of age came over and he, he said, Uncle Jack, I got a big problem. Would you pray with me? I said, well, go find your counselor, Sonny. We're busy. We're building a building here. And as he turned to walk away, I noticed a tear in his eye. I called him back and said, Son, come here. You know, a seven or eight-year-old boy with a big problem. 
few minutes it was solved he went away with a song in his heart and I turned to our staff member who I was with I said what in the world are we doing are we building buildings or are we building people and all over the world today we're building great big buildings and we're forgetting the people and we're forgetting what this book is all about I received a letter from a very dear friend of mine, a lady who she has spent years teaching a tribe of Indians in Brazil to read and write in their own language and years trying to translate the Gospel of Matthew. Finally she finished the Gospel of Matthew and it was printed and it was brought into her tribe on a Friday afternoon and she wanted at a big meeting the whole tribe turned out and she gave a copy of it to the chief. And he was so thrilled that he was just beginning to learn how to read and to write. And he turned to the missionary and said, aren't you going to read it to us? And they started to read Friday, and very, very slow readers, you know, and they asked a lot of questions and went along. They started to read. This is a tribe of Indians. The chief said, if God has spoken to us, then we had better listen. And they started to read the Gospel of Matthew on Friday afternoon. They read all Friday afternoon, all Friday night, all Saturday, all Saturday night, finished it Sunday afternoon. And they listened two and a half days. And then you come to America and you say, hmm, so what? I want to take you back to when I was first saved. I was saved at the age of 19 out of jazz and all the rest of the stuff. I was leading a 12-piece dance band in New York City and thought I was living. I didn't know one verse of scripture. I didn't know any hymns in the Bible. It was all, all Greek to me. I didn't know anything about it. We thought we were the first four Christians in New York City. We found that there were 25 million people within 25 miles of Times Square. And so we hit the streets of New York City. And then we hit the rescue missions and we went to the jails and 17 jails we started in back in those days and we're still working in those same 17 prisons. And by the following spring we had built from four of us to 21 guys and we're meeting over in my bedroom and, and we didn't invite anybody in. We didn't know anything about fundamentalism or liberalism or anything like that. And, and we met a missionary from Africa. Now, I'll be frank to tell you, he said he was from the Belgian Congo, which is now known as Zaire. I didn't even know where that was. Did he study geography? Mm -mm. I went all through grade school, junior high, and high school. I never, never, never remember reading one single book. All I went to high school for was to lead a 12-piece dance band and run on the citywide track team, and I thought that was living, and that was it. And I was on the, an office of the general organization of the school, so they didn't dare to kick me out. And, and I'd borrow somebody else's book report, and I never studied history. I never studied geography. The only subject I was any good in was math. All of a sudden, I got converted, and I started meeting some missionaries. I had to get out some geography books to find out where these places were. I remember the first time I met a fellow from the Philippine Islands, I said, Philippine, it must be, oh, he was talking about the book of Philippians, and I said, that must be out in the Philippine Islands somewhere. And the first time I heard Dr. Barnhouse, he said, we're going to talk for the book of Hebrews, and I spent the whole hour trying to find it over in the Old Testament. I knew that was about those Jews, and I couldn't find it. So we were raw heathen. Well, we heard this missionary from Africa, and he told about the need of the Belgian Congo. Turned to my girl as we left, I said, honey, we're going to Africa. 
That's the place to go. Somehow I got to quit my job in the insurance business and I got to get Bible educated. We're going to go to Africa. About the time I had my heart set on Africa, I heard Dr. Isaac Page just come in from China and he was one of the leaders of the China Inland Mission in those days. And he told them they were need in China and they just had a famine. And I said, boy, Africa is important, but I think I'd rather go to China. Well, about the time I had my heart set on going to China, I heard Paul Fleming, who was just starting the great New Tribes mission. And he told about the great Amazon Valley of South America, the largest unevangelized field in the world. I said, well, you know, Africa and China are important, but I think we better go down there. And that was just about the time when John and Betty Stam had their heads cut off in China by the communists. And you remember that? And I heard John Stam's father, Dr. Peter Stam, a great, great man of God with the brethren. And he had just come back from Holland. He said, if we don't have a young couple in Holland within a year, we're going to have to close our work up. I had my wife wearing wooden shoes before that night was over. Well, you say, why all the confusion? Africa, China, South America. Hey, gang, that wasn't confusion. I believe every time you hear of a need, we ought to click our hands and salute the Lord and say, Amen, Lord, here am I. Then you put that continent, you put those countries down on your prayer list, and you start listing missionaries, and you start shelling out and giving to them. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 works out. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not to thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I think they should have called our original 21 fellows the Cave of Adullam. I mean, we had an awful bunch of guys. One of our guys almost committed murder. In fact, the fellow that led me to Christ was within an inch of committing murder. And one of our fellows was a, a carpenter. He was from Scotland. We call him Scotty. William Malcolm. And one night he came into our Bible study. Now, we didn't have any teachers, no one to teach us, but we'd meet about 7 o'clock at night. And we'd stay till midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, just pouring over the Scriptures and trying to put it all together like a jigsaw puzzle, you know. And, and Scotty Malcolm came in one night with his Bible. He said, fellas, wait till I show you I found something. First time anybody ever showed us, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Hey, we thought we were the first people that ever found those two verses. Isn't that great? In fact, we were so enamored by Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we had him as a carpenter to make up little mottos with Proverbs 3, and we hung them up in our bedrooms. And then we learned Psalm 32, 8, I'll instruct thee and teach thee on the way which thou shalt go, I will guide thee with mine eye. And gang, I would say, what we need is open hearts. And as you open your heart, you acknowledge the Lord in all your ways in a wonderful way, he'll direct the paths. Now let me show you how the Lord does direct people's Pass. When we were first saved, I had a, I led the stand span, I had a, a stand about as big as this, top of this podium, and it was about 12 inches tall, and I'd go out in the dance band with a baton and with my trombone over my arm, you know, and that was that back in the days of Gallimbardo and Wayne King and all that crowd. Sounds like Sunday school music today. And, After we got saved, we took that same stand where sin used to abound out on the street corners, and God's grace did much more abound. And one day we were preaching in New York City, and we were under an elevator, and uh, you want to preach, you get out in the street corners, and in New York City you're not allowed to use an amplifier, so you just develop your lungs and you shout out, 
make people hear you. And the more traffic goes by, the louder you yell, you know. And, and that was great. Well, along those street means came a girl by the name of Sophie Mueller. And she was older than us. And we knew Sophie. She was already an artist with Harper and Rowe. And she was one of their feature writers, a very, very brilliant girl. And this was in June, and she came along, and we were in one of the suburbs in New York City, and I was up on the stand preaching. She looked at me, and then she looked over at the organist, and that was my girlfriend, and she was the daughter of the wealthiest doctor in our area, and she was a society girl, and, and she had gone to the same liberal church that Sophie went to, and the last time Sophie saw me, I was playing a red-hot trombone solo in a minstrel show in a liberal church. And she said, these two must be off on a religious binge. Well, I'm smarter than they. Anyway, I've finished college, and so I'll, I'll straighten the two of them out. And she hung around. And you know how street music will go two, three, four hours, you know, and as long as the crowd's there and keep coming, you keep preaching. And we didn't believe you could really get saved unless you get down in the gutter and prayed. And the next thing I knew, about three or four hours later, I see... My girlfriend and Sophie down on their knees praying in the gutter. And Sophie got converted. Well, she was all mixed up. She believed in reincarnation. She didn't believe in hell and the lake of fire. And so uh, Marge took her into a home and discipled her. In September, she quit a very lucrative job. Very beautiful young lady. And she went on to Bible school. Graduated three years later and... She said, if God said go, then I guess he means go. And so she went down to Bogota, where she learned Spanish. And every place she'd go, she'd try to buttonhole young men and say, hey, I hear there's scores of tribes here in the jungles of Colombia and across the Venezuela border that have never heard. Why don't you go? But very few men are willing to do that. Usually women do it. Seven, I think, women working in the jungles, every one man have to be tough, you know, to do that sort of thing. And so girls do that. And when so couldn't get men to go, uh, she decided to go. And this beautiful, skinny little gal went down the jungles. She's now 76 years of age. She's been there maybe 77 years of age. She's been there for 41 years. Last fall, Joe Jordan and I and Manolo decided to go down to visit her. Oh, I want to tell you who Manola is, too. Manola is one of our graduates from our Bible Institute in Argentina. Manola, uh, when we, when Joe Jordan contacted him, we decided to make a raid on all the nightclubs and all the beer joints in Argentina. And, and if you ever met Joe Jordan, that's the kind of a guy he is. He wants action all the time. So they get into this nightclub. It's called the Devil's Cave. Pretty good name for a nightclub, huh? And uh, here, this guy, Manola, he's running all of the psychedelic uh, lights, and he's running the rock band and all that sort of thing. Well, they led Manola to the Lord. And Joe Jordan said, Manola, here's the New Testament. I want you to read it. And let me know when you finish. Four days later he came and said, well, I finished it. You got any more? He said, you finished the whole New Testament? For you? Got any more? Yeah, he said, I got an Old Testament. Good, I don't care what it is. I'd be glad to read it. So he gave him the Old Testament. About four or five weeks went by and he finished the Old Testament. He said, boy, that's a great old book. Ben, you got any more like it? I'd like to read some more. He said, no, you got the whole thing together now. He went to the Bible school. 
Today he heads up all of our work in Colombia. He lives in Bogota. He never leaves his home without being trailed by the terrorists. He's on their hit list. Talked to our ambassador down there. He said, hey, you better get him out. They're going to kill him. So he said, hey, Manolo, you better get out of here. He said, I can't. He said, I have over 100 Word of Life Bible clubs all over Colombia. I, I can't leave them. I, I started. I can't leave them. Well, Joe and Manola and I, we had to fly over the Andes in a commercial plane, and then you get in a little putt-putt of a plane, and we're flying about 13,000 feet for four or five hours. And then we landed in the jungles of a little airstrip, and then we got in a rowboat with a motor on the back of it, and we started upstream. Hot, humid. And you see the crocodiles coming up all over the place, you know, in the river, and all kinds of fish and so on. You just hope they didn't come up into your boat and upset it. And... And uh, five hours later, we arrived where Sophie is. I said, Sophie, I've never been in such a hot, stinking place in my life as this jungle. She said, only five hours. She said, cheer up. When I came, it took me five days in the dugout canoe to get right here. She said, you should have arrived a half hour ago. She said, you know, look at this 16-foot boa constrictor that we killed a half hour ago. I was glad it was dead when I got there. <laughs> and we sat in a little hut. One room, this girl speaks eight of the tribal languages. She's translated the Bible into four of the languages, plus Spanish and English. She's given up marriage. She's given up wealth, everything. And she lives in a little one-room thatched roof hut. I mean, very, very small. And she does her cooking. She has a cot that she sleeps on and desk where she does all the translating work. And before we had our meeting that night... I said, so how many, how many born-again Indians are there here anyway? Oh, she said, we don't count them like you were evangelists in America. What do you mean? She said, we don't even baptize them. They quit their smoking and drinking and dancing and dope-taking, you know. I said, you mean to say that the savages down here do those things? I thought that was only for America. She said, that's where they learned it, from us, you know. I said, well, how many do you have that have been baptized? Oh, she said, I guess we could count up maybe uh, 35,000. And so, how many churches have you established? 350. You say, you mean a woman preacher has established 350 churches? Mm-hmm. You know why? Because you guys will never get down there. And as soon as she can, she indoctrinates the young elders and they take over. And for years, she's been after us to start a Bible Institute. We've supported her all these years down there and wanted us to start a Bible Institute there in the jungles. We couldn't find any Americans that ever stick their neck out and go down there. But Ramon Rivas, who Manola had led the Lord, he comes from Paraguay, and he was studying over at our school, and Ramon said, I'll go. And he came... And while he was learning the tribal languages, he and a group of Indians, they led several thousand other Indians to the Lord. And he met a beautiful girl by the name of Anna, a Colombian girl, and they were married there in the jungles. And they headed up our Bible Institute. Not a great big school, maybe 30, 40 Indians in it. And what a meeting we had with them that night. And they sang and I preached and they brought in the unconverted. A lot of people gave the hearts to the Lord. And Ramon said, oh, 
I, I turned to Sophie one day and I said, Sophie, when you go in the jungles, um, do you carry a gun? All these wild animals and savages. Oh, she said, I'd be scared of a gun. I don't even know how to load it, let alone shoot it. Well, I said, what do you carry? Well, she said, I take this multicolored women's umbrella that they gave me in Bogota and I carry that and had a steel thing on the end of it. And then she had a stick about it, not quite as wide as this pulpit with a big knot on the end. It was the root of a tree. She said, that's, that's what I carry. So what good is that? Oh, she said, you'd be amazed. She said, the other day I was going down the jungle trail and here was a, a, a leopard ready to charge at me and I took my woman's umbrella and I went like that and he disappeared in the jungle. So who wouldn't be scared of a woman's umbrella, huh? She said, another day I'm going down the path and here's a python curled up ready to strike at me and I said, it's either me or you, Buster. And I took my stick and hit him over the head, took my latest umbrella, jammed it into his head. I said, you should have seen the gush of blood. Oh, don't you like these little old women of the jungles? Well, Ramon Rivas said, hey, look, guys, can't you and Joe Manola stay for another two weeks? And Manola said, I can, but Joe and I had to go down to Ecuador to be with Rachel Saint, and so we had to go. He said, we're going to have the first Word of Life camp for jungle Indians, men only. He said, we already got over 400 of them coming. It costs $4 a week to go. Neat rice and beans for breakfast, rice and beans for lunch, and then they have beans and rice for supper. Sort of like they have here at Masters College, you know. And uh, he had over 400 of them there. I said, what are you using for a camp here in the jungle? He said, well, we cut the trees down, cleared the jungles. We'll play soccer three or four hours in the afternoon. In the morning, we study the Bible for three or four hours. In the evening, we do the same thing, and, and that was going to be it. He said, I need some help. At the end of the two weeks, I was for fellas only, and you know, you don't need any facilities at all. Uh, you bring along a hammock if you want to sleep in a bed, and otherwise you sleep on the floor of the jungles, and the Indians love that. At the end of the two weeks, over 200 of them made professions of faith in Christ. Many of them said they're ready to go to the Bible Institute and prepare for the jungles. And then Manola got in that same plane and he flew back to Bogota. He was coming back to the camp in a couple of weeks. And he flew back. And a few days later we got word from Manola. He said, Ramon is missing. Ramon got in that same rowboat that we were in and started downstream. We knew he was on the hit list. Ramon is missing. And Manola got a search party and started down the Onoka River looking for Ramon. Five days later, they found his remains. All that was left was the bones. If Ramon had been married one more day, if he lived one more day, they'd been married for one year. And as they buried the bones in a shallow grave at our Bible Institute, Anna, his wife, took a guitar and she sang. Well, we knew we had to get Anna out of there, lest they kill her too. And we flew her down to Argentina, where she is right now. Her three brothers, who are Colombians, are studying. We have students from every Spanish-speaking country of the world down there. And after she was there a few months and got her feet on the ground again, and she said, I'm going over to Paraguay, where my husband comes from, because he has a mom and dad who are Roman Catholics, not saved, nine, nine brothers and sisters that have nothing to do with the gospel. I'm going over there. And she spent several weeks living with her relatives. 
And during those several weeks, he led all nine other brothers and sisters of the Lord and mom and dad. But you don't do this in a Roman Catholic country. And they left the Catholic Church and they signed up with a good Bible preaching church and they were baptized. And the local priest had her arrested and brought in before the court. And the head of the police department listened to the police's charges against her and then said, Young lady, what have you got to say? And this dear, sweet Anna, she said, Sir, you can beat me up, put me in jail, you can kill me if you want. But don't you ever forget that my husband gave his life for Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to stop. The head of the police said, Come in the back room, I want to talk with you. And an hour later, she had the head of the police department on his knees and he got converted. He came back in the courtroom. He said, uh, the priest, you can take a walk. All because of one girl. A girl who loves not her life even unto death. Then came the problem, who's going to take Manola's place? I mean, uh, Ramon Rebus's place. Well, just before the war in the Falcons, Ramon was a rather short little guy. He led a great big fellow, Bema Bacasta, to the Lord. And he was in the battle for the Falcons. And the British threw some bombs in, and 17 of his men were wiped out, and he was the only one that survived. Through all this, he found the Lord, came to our Bible Institute, graduated. He said, I will take Ramon's place. God must have a reason to spare me when all the rest of my buddies were killed. He is there today. I pray for him every day. Now here we are, and many of you are thinking of the future. You'll read a story there about one of our fellows who was killed one year ago last Saturday. Graduate my Bible Institute, went on to Cedarville College. He thought his whole life was ahead of him. But a couple of years ago, he said to me one day, I'm going to serve the Lord now. He said, no one knows of the future. And you better serve the Lord now. Now, when you move out to serve the Lord, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be battle. There's a war on between God and Satan, between heaven and hell. And so you're called to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And if you get in on the fray, you're going to have a battle on your hands. But in the midst of all the conflict, there is blessing and there's victory. But it's never going to be an easy road. Mark that down. It's never, never, never going to be an easy road. It's going to be a battle. But in the midst of the conflict, there'll be blessing and victory. Tom Landry's a very good friend of mine, and every once in a while I have an opportunity to talk to the cowboys, and he walks in about 35, 40 more guys in back of him. And I'm always thinking ahead what I'm going to preach on the next time with them. And the other day I was studying 1 Corinthians 1, and I wrote this down. Few in the family of God have big names, power, or wealth. Few in the family of God have big names, power, or wealth. Who does God usually use? The foolish, the honest, the base, and so on. What do the United States Marines say today? We need a few good men. You know what word of life needs today? A few good men and women 
who are sold out to God and His Word. That's what we're looking for. We need about a thousand more to work with us on all six continents. Turn, please, to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. In Revelation 12, 11, And they, that is the early church, overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. I was reading the other day in the book of Judges, chapter 5, how, listen to this, My heart is toward the governors of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. And in verse 18, Zebulun and Naphtali were people that jeoparded their lives unto death in the high places of the field. The field is the world. In other words, they dared to die on the fields of battle. They dared to die on the fields of battle. How about you? In Romans 12, we're told to present these bodies as a living sacrifice. In Romans 6, we're told that present every member of our body, that every member of your body and my body, our feet, hands, mouth, eye, every member of our bodies are either weapons of sin under unrighteousness and hell, or every weapon, every member of our body is a weapon, an instrument in the hands of God toward Jesus Christ in heaven. Have you ever taken time out to say, Lord, I want to present every member of my body? Let's bow for prayer.